I just want to warn you, we don't normally teach on these topics, but uh, it came up today, so we're going to deal with it. Um, a number of scholars concur that this chapter is one of the more exegetically, linguistically, and theologically challenging passages in the New Testament. And add to that the idea that it's just downright creepy. Okay? Let me show you the first verse of our passage today. It's actually reported, Paul's writing to the church, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Um, that's, I don't know about you, but that's a little creepy uh, to me. And uh, knowing that I would face a difficult passage today, our songwriters forum at North Wake actually has written a song based on, believe it or not, this passage. I'll let you hear just a little of it. One and a two and a one, two, three, four. You should not be sleeping with your father's wife. That's just not right. You should not be sleeping with your father's wife. That'll mess you up for life. Is she just his wife? Or is she your mother too? Either way, you got some explaining to do. You should not be sleeping with your father's wife. There you go. Um, that is actually written by one of the guys on the team, and Daniel Creswell tells us, look for that as an embedded bonus track on the next Northwake CD somewhere. <laughs> Like 27 minutes after the last song, you can expect to find some gem like that. But in light of both that and what we're about to tackle today, we should pray. So would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we're looking at just a tragedy in the church, um, a shameful thing in, in, a, in many ways. And it'd be really prideful of us not to see our own selves in the midst of it. So help us humbly see where our reflection looks like Corinth in this text today so that we might um, turn from that and honor you. Uh, we, we really want to honor you as a church family, and we ask for that grace to come to us through your word and the teaching of it today in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Paul is addressing a particularly stunning uh, sin that has taken root in the church in Corinth. As Paul says, a, a man has his father's wife. And scholars tell us that in all likelihood, this is a, the language here reflects a prolonged relationship uh, where they are actually living together. Evidently, most likely a man is living with his stepmother. And the details beyond that, we don't know and we don't want to know. Okay. Um, but it is an ongoing thing. This is not a single lapse or an error in judgment, but it is an ongoing, unrepentant, deep ensnarement that's being addressed uh, in, in the very direct fashion that Paul's doing it today. Paul says that this kind of stuff going on in the church is shocking even for the culture around them at Corinth. His language is, uh, this kind of stuff doesn't even happen amongst the pagans. And for, for that to be Corinth is really stunning. Um, Corinth was the first century's Vegas. It was a city renowned for immorality. When you said uh, you were going to go out and Corinthianize, that meant immorality. 
Matter of fact, it's interesting, as, as recently as there's a 1905 edition of a dictionary of slang and colloquial English that actually has in it a definition of what it means to be called a Corinthian. And if someone calls you a Corinthian, ladies, it's not a compliment. It means you are a fashionable whore. That is, almost 2,000 years after Corinth, half a world away in a different language, that still exists. Their legacy of their immorality still exists. And Paul says, look, church, you're embracing stuff that even the Corinthians won't do, the culture around you. Um, It is absolutely shocking. Um, But... Amazingly, Paul is not getting after them about that man and his sin. There's something he is more concerned about than that this man has been ensnared by the sin. And that's the reaction of the church. In verse 2, he says, you're proud. This is going on and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Um, their reaction, it seems, is the exact opposite of what it should have been. They should have been mourning. Like when you're at a funeral of a good friend, that should have been their attitude because of what had ensnared this man and because it had happened in their church. Um, But the Corinthians were proud You know, there's a lot of trouble in the Corinthians church. And one of the things that's evident when you read about this is that they really underestimate the devastating power of sin. That that they could be proud of this kind of thing. You know, in in May of last year, there was a congressman in Indiana named Mark Souter who was a a follower of Jesus Christ, but he he had fallen into an affair with a part-time staffer. And he had correspondence with a magazine called World Magazine about this affair that he committed. And he he wrote some very insightful things. He said, politicians and top professionals are skilled manipulators and smooth with words. He wrote, holding us accountable is hard. In another email, he says, my sin, while forgiven, is greater in that God put me in a position of public trust so I deserve whatever criticism I receive. He says, I prayed multiple times a day during this time. I sang hymns with emotion and tears, felt each time that it wouldn't happen again, read the Bible every morning. He says, how in the world did I have a torrid, which is an accurate word, many-year affair? How could I compartmentalize it so much? You know, we cannot underestimate the power of sin to ensnare. And this man did, and the Corinthians did. Instead of mourning that this had come into their church, they're proud of it. You're thinking, how could you be proud of it? I, I wondered, they might have been proud of just being so incredibly tolerant. Look at us. We welcome everybody. You know, the sign out front, everybody welcome. And they meant it. Everybody welcome. Didn't matter. There's a church in Denver uh, that is... Um, an evangelical church in their uh, tradition. And they um, have decided that they are going to welcome, welcome gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender, trans, excuse me, I can't even say it, transgender people in church life and leadership. You can be in leadership in that church with that kind of a, a sexual perspective. The, the pastor there who's married and a father of five kids says, my church 
extends the love of God to people who are treated like the last group of lepers on earth. It's almost like they're proud of their tolerance, even their tolerance of what the Bible says is, a, is an aberration and a sin before God. Paul says that what they should have done was remove this man from their fellowship. That was the right thing to do. And even though he's absent, he has done what they refused to do. He passed judgment on this offender. The next verse, Paul says, even though I'm not physically present, he's writing from another city, I am with you in spirit. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I was present. He passed judgment on him. And if you're tracking with us through 1 Corinthians, you know that last week Paul said the exact opposite. It almost sounds like he's contradicting himself. Last week in chapter 4, Paul says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. So last week he fusses at the church and says, Stop judging. And this week he fusses at the church and says, Judge. So somehow... We've got to sort this all out, and it's evident that these, neither one of these are all-inclusive categories. And if you compare them together, it might be helpful in helping us think about that. When Paul in chapter 4 is telling the church not to judge, remember they were sitting up high in judgment on his ministry as an apostle and his teaching of, of what was really the Word of God. They were in judgment on the Word of God. And Paul says, that's inappropriate. We sit in humility and submission to the Word of God. This week, he says, they are, they are judging an individual's morality. And he says, that is a thing the church must do. We are called to live lives that represent God to the cities in which we live. And we must do this. Plus, you notice that this is a corporate act. This is not something that they did individually. or were, And we're not to do this individually. But this is an act they're doing as a church. And we'll talk more uh, about that in just a minute as we just want you to recognize though there's a kind of judging that's forbidden for Christians to do and there's a kind of judging that's required of Christians to do okay. neither one of those is an all-encompassing category and Paul is now urging them to judge in the strongest of of categories let me back us up one here He says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature or his flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. This judging, as we already have seen, is something they do together as a church not something that any one person would do. And Paul is with them in spirit in this act, and he says the power of the Lord Jesus is present when the church gathers. When the church gathers, the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Um, do you ever think about that? Do you believe that? How does that shape the way you think about coming to church? coming to gather as the church, if when we gather as God's people, the power of the Lord Jesus to deliver someone from their sin, um, even to hand them over to Satan, he says, as part of that process, to rescue someone from their sin is 
is, is present there. You know, too often we forget about this. We think this is just like another class. It's another lecture. It's just like another conference, another meeting, except it's about God and there's a lot more singing. Okay. Paul says that when the church gathers, the power of Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is actually present in some mysterious sense. I, I'll quote to you again, I've quoted it before, the provocative quote from Annie Dillard. She says, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. The power of Jesus Christ is present when the church gathers. How would that, how might that shape the way you get ready for church to come and gather if that power is really going to be present here? I, I did some research, went online and researched tips on how to get ready for church. One guy's suggestion was this. He said, you take care of the outside. When you get there, God will take care of the inside. So... Put your clothes on, get dressed up, get to church. That was his advice. Another, another column was all about how moms can make it to church. A lot of really good advice. Give your kids a bath the night before. Pick out their clothes. Make sure you lay out matching socks. Um, hang the canvas bag with all the supplies on the doorknob. Make breakfast easy. Give a five-minute warning for getting on shoes and gathering everything else you need. Herd everyone into the car and go happily on your way. Not one mention of prayer. Not one mention of turning from your sin because you're about to face the very power of Jesus Christ in the gathered assembly. Um, you know what? It feels like just another gathering. It's not just any other gathering. This is the body of Christ. And when we gather, the power of Jesus Christ is present to save. People can be rescued from their sin as a result of and even during these gatherings. So, every week, Daniel and some of our leaders send out this meditation for preparation <clears throat> little guide. It comes to you by email if you're on our email list. You should read that. You should read the scriptures associated with that, which are usually related to what the, we're going to explore together on Sunday morning. And you should pray and take a moment and confess your sin before you rush in here with your uh, herd of kids that you've wrestled into the car. Because when we are gathered, we have the power and the responsibility, Paul says, to actually hand someone over to Satan. That's his language. Hand this man over to Satan. That could be some kind of direct satanic act that's going to happen to this person. But at the very least, it teaches us something again about the power of the church. And that when you step outside 
of the church, if you are placed outside of the church, you lose some protection, spiritual protection, and you are spiritually vulnerable to the attacks of Satan in a way that you wouldn't be if you were rightly engaged in the body of Christ. And Paul says, we're gonna, if you remove this man, you are turning him over to Satan. It makes you think about maybe there are far greater consequences in just, you know, um, even neglecting church. The gathering here, the midweek gatherings of our small groups together, maybe we are exposing ourselves and our family to more spiritual forces than we realize when we get lazy about these things. And, you know, I've seen it. I imagine that you have, where people drift away from the church and all, it seems like all hell breaks loose in their life. Marriages, I've watched marriages dissolve after the drift. I've watched addictions cropped up after the drift. Um, Paul is teaching us kind of backhandedly about the church. And it's not just any other gathering. The, the power of Jesus Christ is present. And that to turn someone over to Satan like this is, is no small thing. Um, Peter describes Satan uh, this way. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm off in my verses here, evidently. Somehow. Hang on just a second. There we go. Um, it says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus' own description of the devil is this way. He says to the religious leaders of his day who were resisting him, he says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When removed from the church, that's who we're handed over to. That description right there. But the great thing behind this that I want you to see is, is that whole handing over to Satan thing is used for good by our great God. Okay. He is able to use evil for good. He says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature or the flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So the purpose even of this handing over to Satan is to do good things in the life of this wayward man in this Corinthian mess that's going on. It's intended for good. God is going to use Satan to accomplish good. He can redeem evil for good. That's how amazing our God is. It's going it's to accomplish the destruction of his flesh, his sinful nature. And while that could refer to his actual flesh, his actual body, more than likely it simply has to do with his enslavement to sin, that's going to be destroyed. He's going to be set free and restored to a right relationship with God and his, his church community. So that his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. As a result of this suffering at the hands of Satan, having been removed from the church, one day he will repent and be counted amongst the redeemed on that day. And it does raise questions about whether or not he's saved now. But it's not entirely clear in this passage, just not, it's, 
It's not clear in life whether someone who falls into that kind of sin really knows Christ or not. It's extraordinarily difficult to to discern, but it will be made clear if this discipline has its loving effect and he will be saved um, on that day. And God does this. Don't miss that. God is working even through Satan's meddlings in the life of this man. And he's going to use the church as his agent. And at North Wake, we believe this. We believe that the church gathered has the power of Jesus Christ to help people be free from their sin. We really believe that. And as a result of that, our elders have crafted what we call a church discipline policy to assemble the teachings of the Bible on this very process to help people be free from their sin. Um, And that's available uh, from our office. If you just email office at northwake.com and ask for a copy, that will send it to you this week. Um, But here's some, some great quotes from that policy. It says, Discipline, what we're talking about this morning, is a courageous and compassionate act of love Desiring only good for the person caught in sin, its aim is rescue, restoration, and reconciliation. Pursuing someone in sin is the most loving thing that can be done for that individual, for the body of Christ, and for the name of Christ. And that's what Paul's doing in this chapter. He's talked about how it's good for that individual, that it's being done for them to help them be free. And now he's going to talk about how it is good for the church and then for the broader name of Christ. So in verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So now he's using an analogy of, of, of baking bread. Think like sourdough, where you have a little bit of starter you save and you use for each new loaf, each new batch. He says, Get rid of the old yeast, or the leaven, some of your Bibles say, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Um, This is is kind of a a complicated analogy, so I want to take just a couple minutes and walk through it. When he talks about yeast, he's talking about how the leaven... Um, The yeast permeates the whole loaf. Um, It it affects everything. It spreads throughout it and makes it live. He's saying that to tolerate this kind of sin negatively is like that leaven. It affects the whole church. It doesn't just affect one individual. Um, When you fall into sin and choose to embrace it rather than repent of it, the whole church suffers for it. One bad apple really can spoil the whole bunch. Girl, okay. contra Donny Osmond, okay. it really can. It affects the whole church. You can liken it to a ripple effect. You throw that sin into the midst of the church and the ripples go out across the water and they touch a lot of lives. They affect a lot of people. They affect other people who are watching your example. They affect what we're modeling before other people's children. You can call it lowering the bar, especially if it's in the life of a leader, and that may have been the case here. It's the old speed of the leader, speed of the team kind of thing. And if we tolerate this in a leader's life, then that will be the standard for the rest of the body of Christ. Paul's concerned that this man's sin was 
adversely affecting the church. Was it fueling other immorality? Probably. Was it fueling their pride and the divisions that the church was experiencing? Very likely. Was it affecting the reputation of the church and the community? Surely. Because he points out to them, look, the town's talking about you guys. You're doing stuff they won't even do. That's your reputation. And then what we cannot know is what kind of spiritual forces, what kind of demonic doors are opened into lives and into churches when this kind of stuff is allowed to go on. We just don't know. But Paul says in verse 7, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast. He's talking about getting rid of that sin from the church for the good of the church. And this expression comes from the book of Exodus, back when the Passover happened. It was a celebration of God's, the deliverance of God's people from captivity in Egypt by the sacrifice by the blood of a lamb that spared their life. He says, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. This is a symbol. This removal of yeast is a symbol of purity, of removing sin from the midst of the people's lives. And... It's in keeping with, Paul says, their identity as God's people, as the body of Christ, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church. He says in verse 7, he says, Get rid of that old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, this is the truth of what it means to be a Christian to be God's, part of God's people. Our sins have been born away from us by Christ. He is our Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. This is who we are. Christ bore our sins for us so that we would be free from them. We do not have to live by them anymore. We should not live by them anymore. We need to be who we are. Live who we are. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Be who you are, Paul says, unleavened, free from sin. Live that out. That's what it means to be the church. This is how we celebrate the Passover festival, with lives marked by sincerity and truth, not by malice and wickedness. So, Paul is urging the church at Corinth to exercise what we might call church discipline on this man and remove him from their fellowship. For his good, first. For the good of the body of Christ, secondly. But also, he, he wants to issue a corrective about how this would affect our relationships with outsiders. And he wants to clear something up in the closing verses of this chapter. He says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul had written them an earlier letter, and he made that teaching plain to them. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. Now he's clarifying it. He says, 
not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. But in that case, you would have to leave this world. If you weren't going to associate with anybody outside, you would have to be like North Wake Monastery where you would never go out into the world because you couldn't associate with them. He says, that's not what I'm calling you to be. Now, he says, I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So again, we have another clear distinction between when we should judge and when we shouldn't judge. We're not supposed to judge those outside the church and expect them to live by God's standards. We're not to be separate from them for those reasons. It's impossible, he says. You can't separate yourself from them. And, he says, um, it would compromise our mission. We're supposed to love our neighbors. Can't love them if we turn this into a monastery and never go outside its doors. So we are not supposed to judge those outside the church nor separate ourselves from them. We are to love our neighbors. That is central to our mission as a church. Clearly, Paul wants us rubbing elbows with people who are struggling with sexual immorality. But not just that, he says. He wants us up against people who are greedy and who cheat in their business practices and who are drunkards and idolaters. All of us should have friends outside the church who live lives that are quite different than ours. It's okay. We are to love them, not separate ourselves from them. Within the church, it's a different matter. But outside the church, those are our neighbors. We're supposed to love them, not be like them, but we're supposed to love them. And so Paul says, within the church, though, um, we are not even to eat with such a one. So he frees us from having to judge those outside the church. He says, God will judge them. It's not our job. But within the church, do not even eat with such a one. Now, this could and obviously would include this table that we just celebrated, the Lord's Supper. Um, Paul says that those who are embroiled in sin and will not repent of it would be denied the privilege of this act of worship with the body of Christ. Now, contrast that with that church in Denver that I mentioned to you earlier where their pastor says what feels a little magical is that during communion there are lots of families with children in their arms and gays and everyone together. And it feels really normal. It's the family of God gathered around the table. And elsewhere in their article they talked about you know, not judging one another. Paul tells us judge. Judge in areas of sexual immorality. And it would affect who can come to this table. But it would also, I think, affect broader than that. Just the idea of sharing a meal with someone. He says, don't even eat with such a one. It involves breaking a relationship that would include normal hanging out, even outside of this gathering. So what kind of contact is prohibited when someone is removed from our fellowship? Um, The normal fellowship 
of believers, the normal socializing that happens with friends that love Christ together, that's excluded. They give that up with the hope that they will desire it back, come to their senses and desire it back. What kind of contact is to be maintained? Because this is not a call to break all contact with someone who's been removed from our church. Contact that encourages restoration and repentance is to be maintained. So we would not just hang out socially, but we would engage in conversations and activities that intentionally takes that conversation towards reconciliation and repentance. So we pursue them, we love them, but we don't extend to them the privilege of normal friendship and socialization fellowship together. So Paul writes all these things, first of all, for the good of the one. We practice this here at North Wake for the good of the one. It is an act of love. But it is also for the good of the many, for the good of the church, to protect the purity of the bride of Christ. And Paul says, in addition, we are to maintain relationships with those outside the church who are trapped in these sins. But he urges us and he commands us to remove such a one from our midst. May God grant us grace to mournfully and lovingly obey in this matter. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, I've sat in way too many conversations about people that we know and love who have chosen just to go off and embrace a sin that is self-destructive and dishonors you. And I know that none of our elders look forward to those conversations. They are the hardest thing we do. And so I pray grace as we lead our church in this matter, grace upon us that we would love as Christ loves, that we'd be faithful um, to love well in this matter, to not give up on somebody who's trapped and ensnared in a sin that it would be dangerous to them, be devastating to their relationship with you. Um, and Lord, protect this community from those sins in the first place. Help us to see sin for what it really is. May your kindness protect us. May your love um, move us to pursue one another with the love of Christ. Um, and Lord, may we love our neighbors well alongside that. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.